Haven't you missed seeing our kids up here? I love our children so much, and they are all our children. What a blessing it is to be able to be here united again, uh, many in person, many more as Grant shared, watching online, worshiping with us as part of our one body online. And we're grateful for your presence today as well. As we get into Romans chapter 14 and 15, which I think is a significant part, probably the main reason why Paul writes the letter of Romans. Um, I want us to begin with an Old Testament scripture, Psalm 133 verse 1, which says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Anybody disagree with that? (laughs) Of course not. Anybody want to try to say that that's easy? Well, it's much easier said than done. But that is God's purpose. That is God's vision for his people. And certainly written in Old Testament times, but absolutely true, especially true of his people, his body, the church today. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And just as we sang with the kids, red and yellow, black and white, there are all kinds of differences on the exterior, on the interior, likes, dislikes, preferences, desires, skills, gifts, all of those, and many, many more. We recognize that, that that is a part of the nature of the church. We are different. We are different. We have different experiences. We have different personalities. We have different histories. And yet we are one because we have unity. Romans 14 and 15 deals with that in a very difficult time from a very difficult perspective. Because Romans 14 and 15 deals with the same topic that our nation and many of our churches and some of our families struggle with even still today. And that is that oneness, being unified in spite of all of the differences. And for the church at Rome and for all of the churches of the New Testament after Acts 10... And the baptism of Cornelius and his family who were not Jews. For the first time in 2,000 years, Gentiles didn't have to be Jews to be acceptable to God. And they didn't have to become Jews to be a part of the church. And so you had this very serious, centuries-old division that was part racial, part ethnic, part historical, part theological, part cultural. And yet it was God's plan that they would all be together in one church family. Well, as you can imagine, you didn't just snap your fingers and everybody loved each other. It doesn't happen today and it didn't happen then. And we forget that sometimes. In spite of all of the workings of the Holy Spirit. We just started a class on the Holy Spirit in our Family Life Center at 9 a.m. If you haven't found a class to go to yet, that would be a great one for you to be a part of. We'll look at the Holy Spirit between now and the end of May. But in spite of the Holy Spirit being present in a, in a very extraordinary way, far different than, than he is today, although he is present in us today, 
But an extraordinary outward acts that we saw in the first century church, still they had trouble getting along. Still they had trouble accepting each other. Still they had trouble worshiping together. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So a few things about these verses from Romans 14, verse 1 through Romans 15, verse 7. We're going to take this subject in two sermons today and also next week. Looking at the text this week especially, drawing some specific, almost literal uh, applications from it. And then next week, uh, speaking a little bit further about it and putting some things maybe on a more practical level. First of all, accept one another. It's already hard. (laughs) It's already hard. And that word accepting one another, that that means different things to different people. And as we're going to see in this reading and as we've seen in in Romans so far, it doesn't mean condoning something that somebody else believes or says or stands for. It doesn't It doesn't mean you agree with everything that they're doing or everything, every way that they're living, every decision they're making. But there is some degree of acceptance that Christians are commanded to have for one another. Romans 14, beginning at verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers each day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Verse 10, why then do you, why do you judge your brother or sister? And why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. I think that's important. Well, what in the world is he talking about? He's not just talking about, um, how did they say it in Jurassic Park, metasources or veggie sources. (laughs) He's not just talking about vegetarians versus those who will eat meat. Although that is what's happening. But it was happening because of theology. It was happening because someone believed that to eat that meat meant you were worshiping an idol. A pagan idol. Something other 
than God. And we don't understand that because that's not our divisions. That's not our discussion. That's not our situation. But in the first century, the way they did this is that you would raise your beef and then you would bring it to the market and you would sell it and people would buy it and they would take it home and eat it. But if you were a pagan, then before you did that, you would offer up that as a sacrifice to your God, to your idol, giving thanks to them for the bounty that you had been given And then taking it to the marketplace and selling it to whoever wants to buy it and letting them do whatever they want with it. And for some Christians that knew about that, they thought you can't do that. You can't do that. Because to do that is a violation of the first of the 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It was an act of idolatry. That's how important this issue was. Now, just because it's not important to us today in our discussions, let's not think that it's not an important issue. It was a vital issue, so much so that some thought they were breaking what Jesus called the first and great commandment, to love the Lord your God God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about, chapter 10 talks about that. Colossians 2 talks about that. It was a big, big deal. And I have a feeling that there were some on the Jewish side, Jewish Christian side, and some on the non-Jewish Christian side that could not do this in good conscience. Perhaps some of the pagan Christians felt like they were going back to their old way of life. And certainly some of the Jewish Christians would consider it appalling that you would give any kind of a notion of acceptance of any kind of pagan practice. But not everybody believed the same. And yet they worshiped at the same church and they were part of the same body. Throughout the book of Romans, as we have seen, Paul has labored very hard just to get here for 11 chapters talking about how we're saved not because we do the right things, we're saved because God has given us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not of ourselves, as he tells the Ephesians in chapter two. No one can boast. And he calls on us to be merciful and to be forgiving. And so a few things about this passage. First of all, accept the one whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. (laughs) And I want us to come back to that one because the first question you ask after that statement is what? Well, Bill, what are the disputable matters? (laughs) Yeah, that's the $64,000 question, all right. And I want to speak to that in just a moment. Secondly, in this passage, the strong ought to bear with the weak. The strong ought to bear with the, with the weak. And it's probably the experience of our shepherds and our other ministers, but it's been my experience that when I don't want to do something that someone else wants to do, I want to play that I'm the weak brother card. <laughs> and you have to acquiesce to me. Because you doing this and exercising your Christian liberty where we disagree is going to hurt my faith. So the Bible says, don't do it. Is that what the Bible says there? I read that to say, 
the strong ought to bear with the weak. And I think those of us who have been in the church for a few years, those of us who have had the opportunity to study the Bible for a while, we need to remember that we are the strong. And if we're not, it is on us. Scripture tells us that we are to grow in our faith. You've heard me make this statement before. One of the most haunting statements I've ever heard. Some people haven't been a Christian for 30 years. They've been a Christian for a year, 30 times. Or 40. Or 50. Or more. Because they haven't grown. They haven't matured. And now they want to point to this verse and say, no, they can't do that because it offends my faith. And I'm the weaker brother. I'm the weaker sister here. And I want to tell you, if you've been in the church for a while, you are not. And if you are, you shouldn't be. And you need to repent. The strong ought to bear with the weak. Next, stop passing judgment on one another. He's going to say this exact thing in the next passage as we begin in verse 13. And there are several passages of scripture that you see here on your outlines that are on our website. And one of those is James chapter 2. James 2 verses 12 and 13 says this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be judged based on judgment because I have no chance in that scenario. I want to be judged by God from the perspective of mercy, grace, forgiveness. And what scripture tells me is, Bill, if you want God to judge you that way, you better be judging others with the same standard or better stop passing judgment. Leave that to God. He spoke about that a lot in chapter 12. Turn it over to God. Jesus could say from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because of what is said about him in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so Jesus could let that go and he could look to God, the Father, and he could say, you handle this. I'm releasing this. Doesn't mean God's going to forgive anybody. It doesn't mean God's going to exonerate anybody. It simply means I'm going to let God make that decision and not me. And so I can hear this command, stop passing judgment on one another. We don't know their hearts. We don't know their motives. We have absolutely no business doing that. Finally, in this section, we live and die and belong to the Lord. Romans specifically states that. The kingdom of God is bigger than your specific beliefs on disputable matters. I'm going to say a few things that if you hear them, you may be shocked and you may be mad. 
if you are honest with yourself and how you act. The kingdom of God is bigger than your specific beliefs on disputable matters. Those views and beliefs are important and we should study God's word and have them and live by them. But we should remember that the kingdom of God is bigger than that. And our ultimate goal is to bring people closer to the Lord than they are at this moment, wherever they are. And not turn them away by refusing to act with grace and love, consideration and respect. Because when we refuse to act with those things, we win the argument and we lose the soul. They may walk away saying, boy, that Bill, he is exactly right on the Bible. Well, are you coming back to church next Sunday? Oh, no, no, no. No, I can never go back there. I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. I need to be around people that can kind of give me some room to learn and to grow. I believe it was the late brother Leroy Garrett who was asked one time, well, brother Garrett, what is a disputable matter? (laughs) And I love his response. He thought for a minute and he said, well, I guess any matter under dispute. (laughs) And there's a part of me that gets really nervous with that response. Obviously that can only go so far. Jesus condemns those who would not accept that he is the Messiah. John in 1 John condemns those who did not believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. But I want to say that our disputable matters are nowhere at that level. Probably 99.5% of the time. We would think there's nothing more central than a belief in the resurrection, right? Have you read 1 Corinthians 15? It's written by Paul under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church in Corinth that had members who struggled with the resurrection. Whether it had occurred or not, whether Jesus was bodily resurrected or not, whether we will be or not. We look at that and we say that is a core belief. Surely we all agree on that one. Well, they didn't in Corinth. Yet Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 teaches strongly on the truth of the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and our ultimate resurrection. The apostle makes his case, however, from the perspective of an open, compassionate, respectful discussion with those who were questioning this very central Christian doctrine. What do we do with that? It doesn't mean that we believe that the crucial core doctrines of the Christian faith are fluid and that they can change at will. It doesn't mean that. But neither does it mean that these commands in Romans 14 and 15 don't mean anything. Or that they apply only to the doctrines that I consider to be unimportant. (laughs) Isn't that convenient the way we do that? Sure, I'll give on something that's not very important to me. Well, he's not talking about that kind of doctrine. He's talking about beliefs that were central to the people that were under discussion. Reminds us that all sincere searchers are welcome here and that no genuine question will be rejected. I remember going to a church, not here, but years ago, in a different church in a different town with a family and ultimately became an elder. And he said that when we were first visiting around and we went to one of the churches of Christ in town and we were 
sitting there in this wonderful Bible class, and, and, and one of them asked a question, either the husband or the wife, and they could feel, they could feel the judgment. They could feel it was so real. The message was clear. You're not allowed to ask about that. You're not allowed to not know exactly where you stand on that. You're not allowed to have all your questions unanswered, any of your questions unanswered on that one. That was the last Sunday they went to that church. And they came to ours down the street and they placed membership and they raised their family there and now he's an elder there. Paul's teaching reminds us that our concern is for each other, not for our preferences or even beliefs on disputable matters. It reminds us that all sincere searchers are welcome here and that no genuine question will be rejected. Our concern is not for winning arguments, it is for winning souls. And it is for strengthening rather than destroying someone for whom Christ died. Conservatives in the political world may have as their goal to own the libs and vice versa. But in the church, we don't seek to own anybody in any doctrinal discussion. That is not the way of Christ. He went to the cross rather than do that. And he was the son of God who knew exactly what the answers were. Jesus came full of grace and truth, John 1. The apostle Peter tells us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul elsewhere in Ephesians 4 says, we are to be speaking the truth, what? In love. And if it's not in love, it's not the truth that we're speaking. And people know it. We are called to accept one another. Secondly, act in love. Act in love. Romans 14, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Verse 15. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. We sang the song just a minute ago, love one another. Don't let those angry words take control. Just because you're thinking something, you don't have to say it. <laughs> and when you're thinking something, you may need to ask God if that's the right thing to be in your mind about your brother or your sister. It's interesting in this passage and also especially in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us who's right. <laughs> he actually tells us who's right in this argument about whether it's okay to eat meat that's been offered to an idol or not. Paul says we know that an idol is nothing in 1 Corinthians 8. 
Here he says, we know that everything can be received if it's done so with thanksgiving and gratitude. But for Paul, there's something more important than just who's right about this particular discussion. It's what is the loving thing to do? How is the loving way to act? And I don't want us to get to heaven and God say, you know, you were right on check, 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 check. Except this one about acting in love. That one, not so much. And had you read your Bible, Bill, you would have heard me telling you that one is the most important one of all. It's what my son said was the second great commandment. If you had done that one, you would have been okay on all of those others. Scripture talks so much about loving each other. It talks so much, as we saw in chapter 12 at the very beginning, about being living sacrifices. Jesus saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Paul saying, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And just as our brother Jim Soup shared in that wonderful, wonderful communion meditation, it is Jesus on the cross that is our example As we consider how much patience and acceptance I can have with a brother or sister, we don't need to be seeing in our minds what they're doing. We need to be seeing in our minds Jesus on the cross for me. And then ask myself, what is he asking me to do? That is more important, that is bigger than what he has done for me. And so a few things about this one. Number one, act in love. Act in love. If your brother or sister is distressed by what you're doing, you're no longer acting in love. Work it out. But do so with patience and love. Secondly, do not destroy your sister or brother for whom Christ died. How could it have been put any stronger? Whenever you see that brother or sister that doesn't believe exactly like you do, doesn't like all the same songs and sermons you like, isn't involved in your favorite ministries because they're involved in other ministries, when you see them, remind yourself, Christ died for this person. I will not by my actions destroy them or their faith. I will not. Destroy my sister or brother for whom... Christ died. The next verse in Romans 14, verse 16 says, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. And it will be if you're not acting in love. Finally, the kingdom of God is not about your preferences. Some of you need smelling salts. The kingdom of God is not about your preferences. It's not. Well, what is it about then, Bill? Romans 14 verse 17 tells us the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you're here to get your way, you are in the wrong place. We invite you to sacrifice for the sake of others. 
We invite you to deny yourself. We invite you to put the preferences and the needs and the desires of a brother or sister above your own. Even if it makes you uncomfortable. I kind of have a feeling, Jim, that Jesus was a bit uncomfortable on the cross that day. Next, letter C, foster mutual edification. Foster mutual edification. We won't read these verses, but I hope you will. In Romans 14, beginning in verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And again, he repeats, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of your preference. This is a person for whom Christ died. And so a couple of things here. First of all, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Why? Because that's what the church is supposed to be about. And so secondly, don't cause your sister or brother to fall. Everything in the New Testament goes against that. From the very first formation of the church in Acts 2, they met together and took care of each other. Hebrews tells us to encourage one another constantly. Much like that wonderful relationship that Grant shared that his mother had with Jane and a few of these other ladies that are in this auditorium today. And some that aren't here and some that have passed on. What a blessing. And then of course, verses 22 and 23 of Romans 14, don't go against your own conscience. But that's a far cry from forcing others to go by your conscience and judging them if they land somewhere else on that particular one. Letter D, Christ is our example. Romans 15, verse one, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And that's our example. To allow those insults to fall on us so that our brother or sister might be spared. To allow the discomfort and the uncomfortable feelings to to be felt by us, the strong. So that our brother or sister can be built up in their faith, not destroyed, not discouraged. That's what love does. And so four things about this one. The strong ought to bear with the weak. Repeated here. Secondly, our focus is on our neighbor, not ourselves. Again, if your focus is on yourself, you are going to be unhappy here. Because we preach and imperfectly follow the way of the cross. Third, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. And help each other grow. Help each other learn. But do that in the umbrella, under the umbrella of acceptance. Don't let that brother or sister think for just a moment that because of your difference in this particular discussion, you do not love and accept and respect them and have great compassion for them. And so finally, maintain a spirit of unity. Jesus said, this is how everyone will know that you're my disciples if you are united. Not if you're the same. But if you have unity in the midst of your differences. Why? Because that is unique. That's not the way the world does it. The world wants everybody to be just alike. 
And that's not the church. One heart, one spirit, one voice to praise you. We are the body of Christ. Next week, we'll review some principles from these two chapters and look at the great example of Paul and the Jewish and Gentile churches unselfishly working together and helping each other, sometimes pretty well, sometimes not so much, in spite of their great racial, historical, even doctrinal differences. So a couple of things as we close. First of all, the church is like a salad, not a smoothie. (laughs) I thought about having this at the very beginning, but then I thought they'll never make a 30-minute sermon if I do this. The church is like a salad, not a smoothie. Brother Dan Bouchelle recently tweeted this. And it's interesting to me. You know, Joyce has one of those uh, uh, shake makers, kind of a a small mixer. She gets a a big cup and she puts milk in it and bananas and some kind of protein mix and um, peanut butter. And I, I, I try not to ask her, you know, and she's putting all this stuff in there. And then she plops the top on it, sticks it on that mixer and... And guess what? It doesn't look exactly like those smoothies, but it's pretty close. That's not the church. That is not the church. We don't mix each other violently so that we all look and act and sound and believe and want to do all the exact same things. God could have made the church that way and he chose not to. And it makes it hard. It makes it hard because you all are wrong on so many things. And if you would just believe what I believe, we could do so well together. (laughs) That's what we think, isn't it? We don't say it out loud. We want a church that's smooth. That's not the church I read about in the New Testament. And it's not any church that I've been a part of. Why? Because the church is like a salad, not a smoothie. Look at that salad. It's got a lot of Bill's favorite things in a salad on it. I looked and looked and looked until I found one. It's got the greens, the lettuce or the spinach. It's got the croutons, the crunchies as our family calls them. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but it, it should have some sunflower seeds, maybe some raisins some cucumbers, even a little bit of eggs, great, wonderful, fresh tomatoes, love it, love it, love it, and mobs and gobs of ranch dressing. Why? Because that's how God intended a salad to be. (laughs) But it's interesting that when you look at that, you know everything that's in that salad. Why? Because they're all different. They all look look different. They all taste different, but they all add something to the salad. And it would not be nearly as good if any of those were left out. The church is like a salad, not a smoothie. Because the church can have unity, but it will never have uniformity. We will never all be just alike. I dare say that there will never come a time when just two of us 
are just alike. It is not going to happen. That is not how God created the church to be. You see, that difference is by design. That diversity is by design. And that's what Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 and so many other passages say. The church is composed of members who are way different. And yet they belong to God. They belong to one another. And they are one body. The church can have unity, but not uniformity. And it is only possible if we treat each other with love, respect, and humility. But what a great church that is. And what a marvelous witness that church is to the world. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Where everybody doesn't agree on everything down the line, but they love each other and they accept each other and they want the best for each other and they want to work together. Sometimes from a distance, but for the same cause, for the same Lord, for the same gospel. This morning, if we can help you be a part of a church like that, come as we stand, sing our song together. Uh,